it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and uh, getting in the mood to celebrate. Now, the celebration doesn't really start until next Wednesday, and uh, we'll have our regular edition of uh, Armchair Politics and, you know, the regular show in the morning. But at 4 p.m. next Wednesday, um, coming out of the uh, coming out of the bunker, we have a, a celebration. Uh, of 14 years of doing the show, we're actually launching the 15th year with an anniversary listener appreciation party. Me and MCPG, my favorite uh, Oakland County activist, will be launching the 15th year of Civilized Talk Radio. Sponsors, donors, and guests are invited to help us celebrate the show's past and reignite its future. It's time to return the Tom Sumner program to its pre-pandemic excellence, and you can play an important role. And uh, I hope to see you there. We're going to have fun stuff. We're going to there are some announcements, and um, there's going to be merch there, uh, pizza. It's it's going to be fun. So uh, please join us next Wednesday. In the meantime, stay tuned today because we have a great show in store. It's Wednesday, which means Armchair Politics is uh, coming up uh, next hour for two hours of commentary and analysis about headlines from the worlds of politics and current events. We'll have commentary and analysis from our roundtable regulars, Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right. And they'll be joined this week by the author um, of Preacher Raises the Dead. He was uh, on the show a few weeks ago. He really enjoyed it, wanted to come back. Author Gerald Everett Jones will be joining the roundtable for our uh weekly roundtable, but we're going to start out this first hour talking about some uh, medieval inventions we still can't live without. And that includes, uh, well, itemized in the title of a new book by John Farrell is The Clock and the Camshaft. 
and other medieval inventions we still can't live without. And it's it's an interesting conversation and gives us a different kind of a different take on um, human ingenuity. And you know we think of all these these huge leaps that started after the Industrial Revolution, but yet John goes back much further than that and talks about some of the inventions and how they they still play a role in uh, the evolving technology that we have today. So interesting conversation coming up in just a few minutes. Tomorrow marks the, what is it, the 8th? Maybe even more than that. But tomorrow is the anniversary of when the city of Flint switched over to the Flint River for its municipal, its primary municipal water source. Well, for the fifth anniversary, I did a three-hour radio documentary uh, featuring some of the high-profile figures in what came to be known as the Flint water crisis. Some of it predates the, the, some of the, the conversation, some of my uh, observations predate that switch to the Flint River, um, but it certainly picks up on that and, and follows it through with people like Dane Walling and Rick Snyder and Kurt Guyatt and Mark Edwards and Mona Hanna Atisha. There's just a, a collection of all of the people who were on the show relative to the Flint water crisis um, consolidated into a three-hour documentary. That will air again tomorrow on the Tom Sumner program. But as I mentioned, we're going to talk about... Um, Medieval inventions that are still hanging around, like the clock and the camshaft with John Farrell. So stay tuned. Lots straight ahead. And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is a writer and producer working in Boston. He has... uh, uh, he is a graduate of uh, Harvard with a B.A. in English and American Literature, but his uh, writing and interests have turned uh, to science and religion. We're going to talk about um, some of that, I suspect, but mostly uh, he's uh, written for a number of publications and written several books. One of his more recent books um we're going to talk about called The Clock and the Camshaft and Other Medieval Inventions We Still Can't Live Without by John Farrell. And John joins me by phone. Good morning, John. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on. Um, John, let me uh, let me ask, how, how did you start out studying uh, American literature and English and end up interested in uh, science and 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 even inventions in history um, I started out it was funny I, I, uh, I was initially interested in film and then I got into Harvard it was like well you'd be stupid not to go <laughs> so I go <laughs> and um, they didn't really have much of a film department but so I figured well I'm a writer so let's concentrate on English and American literature and then I was tank- taking the science uh, requirement which was a kind of a survey course of astronomy um, by 
uh, Professor Owen Gingrich, uh, who was just a marvelous um, professor, and he really got me interested in the history of science, and uh, to the point where I was actually thinking about uh, majoring in history of science, but I was so pathetically behind everybody else in math, I just thought, forget it, by the time you catch up, everybody will be graduated. So I figured I'll stick with English, but, you know, keep reading and, and studying, and um, found my way uh, in terms of uh, freelance writing, that there was um, a lot of opportunity for writing about science and history of science. So, so that was basically how that came about. Well, I want to ask you about the timing of your book, because it was uh, scheduled to come out in May of uh, 2020, which is almost two years ago. But it was kind of tough to get a book out during the pandemic. What, what exactly happened? What was your experience having a book come out during that fraught time? It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was kind of uh, frustrating because um, there was no way to pin down an absolute date because it would keep changing depending on, you know, the supply chain of, you know, getting the books from the publisher. So first I thought it was going to come out much later in 2020, and then all of a sudden something opened up and they, they were like, oh, it's ready, it's out now, even before I knew about it. <laughs> um, so, um, but because of the pandemic, I didn't really have an opportunity uh, to get the book reviewed um, so uh, that was a little frustrating. But then um, uh, just a couple of months ago, we finished the, the audio book. Um, and I thought, well, this is now that we're kind of getting through this, the audio book is a kind of a, a good opportunity to kind of do some publicity and get talk about it for people. And, uh, and also because audio books are such, as you probably know, such a huge thing now. People love audio books. They listen to them in the car while they're working out or, you know, doing whatever. And I, was, I, I feel like I kind of came late to that game because I'm so kind of print-oriented. Um, you know, but, uh, I, w- I wonder about that because I, I've been sort of tracking that because I have a lot of writers come on the show. And so I've had some interest in the audio books. I've even had some of the people who do the readings for audio books on the show. Oh, cool. And, and um, it's, it, it was growing almost exponentially. And I wonder, did it taper off a little bit during the pandemic with less people? Because I, I always think of people listening to audiobooks in the car. Yes, yeah, me too. Cause that's where I do. Um, I can't listen yeah. to audiobooks when I'm working out because I'm just too, you know, pumped up. <laughs> and I just wonder, with people closed in and on uh, lockdown and quarantine and all of what we went through during the pandemic, I wonder if it tapered off a little bit. I haven't seen anything on it, but... right. Yeah, but the last time I checked was, um, and it might have been before COVID, but the last time I checked was I read that audiobooks are the one part of publishing that's in double-digit growth as opposed to print books. Uh, but even um, print books were, you know, uh, doing better, I think, during COVID because, you know, people had a lot of time to read at home. Well, I would um, expect that, yeah. Yeah, and um, and also, you know, the vaunted takeover ebooks never really happened. People still definitely prefer print books, although... Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll get an ebook, you know, when I'm traveling, and I'm like, oh, I can't bring the book with me, but I'll get the ebook and I'll just catch up, and then I'll go back and forth between two different, you know, the two different formats. <laughs> I, I that seems like it would make me dizzy, but uh, <laughs> um, but John, I, w- I want to ask you about the uh, about the title because I got some notes from from your publicist uh, about things to ask and. I had to laugh a little bit because, like, the first question was, what's a camshaft? Well, my show is based in Flint, Michigan. And a lot of people from this part of the country 
kind of know what a camshaft is. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But but um but I thought we'd go ahead and talk about that and and the the whole title is the clock and the camshaft and other medieval inventions we still can't live without. And I want to ask about about the clock. When did the clock show up and is there any connection between clocks and camshafts? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um to the best uh, that historians can kind of pin it down, they think the first weight-driven mechanical clock, you know, like the, the same model as, you know, um, you know, my parents' grandfather clock that's powered by weights and has to, you know, probably around the late 1280s. <laughs> that, that big old monstrosity in the front right. hall that looks exactly. like uh, Big Ben. <laughs> yeah. I used to love when I was a kid, every three or four days I'd go down and, you know, pull the weights back up so that it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't get too far off base. Um but yeah, that was probably um, yeah the late 1280s, and it kind of, what's fascinating about it is it kind of combines all the inventions that people in the Middle Ages were already using for you know water mills so that they could grind grain and power trip hammers and you know full cloth and they I think their brilliance was they they would just keep reapplying the same tools in a different way so that um, in the clock you basically. You, the, the problem they had was how can we figure out how to use gravity to like power a clock for like 12 hours so um, you know initially it was um, probably designed at the request of a bishop who wanted to automate the ringing of church bells in the monastery you know the monks would get up at midnight say their prayers go back to sleep the bells would ring you know wake them up in the morning for morning prayers and you know if you had like you're trying to use calibrated candles you know those were unreliable because they'd blow out uh, and you have these kind of simple water clocks that were basically, you know, a basin within a basin, um, and, and somebody had to kind of keep refilling it every couple of hours. So it wasn't a very efficient way to tell time. So um, it really wasn't um, time so much they were interested at first in, as automating um, bells, but they figured to do that, they would need a mechanism that could uh, basically interfere with or break uh, the natural force of gravity of the weights and do it in such a way that you could, you know, get 12 hours out of it at a time or, or you know, eventually longer. And that's where, you know, the whole kind of tick-tock, tick-tock comes from because the device, it was called an escapement drive. The, um, the, in French, it was called the virgin foliate, um, which was kind of like a funny-looking, if you looked at it, it almost looks like a weird coat hanger with two shoulders and then a shaft, you know, almost like a camshaft going down the middle, except it had just two cams, one that would stop... Uh, the um, the gear wheel at you know at the bottom you know like six o'clock and one that would stop it at the top and between those two it would kind of go back and forth and just inhibit um, the turning of the axle so that you could basically you know run the clock for twelve hours before the weight had to be you know kind of run back up again and uh, it was really ingenious because you know it, nobody had any principles of dynamics they had no mathematics it was all intuition they didn't know what the actual power of gravity was but they must have just been so used to figuring out problems intuitively. Um, a group of them came together, probably like a blacksmith and some millwrights, and said, you know, how can we do this, make this work? And then once they did it, they realized, oh, yeah, everybody else was like, hey, can we get one of those too? So that's where, you know, to this day, you, you know, when you fly over America, you see, you know, church towers with clocks in them, and that's basically, you know, uh, where it came about. More with author John Farrell from Boston straight ahead.
Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated, it's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annanick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? So when it comes to protection... 
go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with author John Farrell from Boston, straight ahead. Where did the hourglass fit into all this? Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't think, I mean, they must have used hourglasses uh, just for kind of short-term duration things. Um, I know that um, they used, especially in northern Europe, they used, they tried to use water clocks and, and candles, like long candles that would be calibrated. And as the candle melted, you could kind of go one hour after another. Uh, but as I said, it was very, you know, um, kind of subjective and not that accurate. We're so used now to pinpoint accuracy down to the millisecond. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, and, and the other interesting thing was at that time, because of the seasons, especially in Europe, um, the, the hours weren't equal during the year. They kind of, you know, the hours were longer during the night. They still tried to, you know, have you know, 24 hours, but, you know, subjectively speaking, the hours would be, longer during the night in the winter and then the day hours would be longer in the summer and once you um once they created the clock where they could actually have this kind of universal you know 24 hours it doesn't they didn't have to worry about the seasons anymore and i think it was probably in france that one of the kings within a century institutionalized you know a, a kind of a nationwide you know uh time zone and um it kind of took off from there and uh, in terms of history of science, I think once you had clocks that could measure time like that, you know, then Galileo could start rolling balls down an incline and measuring, you know, how many seconds did that take? And, you know, physics could actually really kind of take off. You know, it took a few centuries, but I think the quantification of time was really kind of a, a huge moment in um, what would become the scientific revolution. But what's interesting about your book, and and one of the things I think people will get out of your book, is the sense that some of the great inventions and leaps forward in terms of, well, today we'd call it technology, um, but uh, the the labor-saving um, methods weren't invented by just those inventors we know about. Oh, exactly. Yeah, we're so used to... Um you know, going back to Thomas Edison, we, we, we see a person as an inventor or like, you know, some genius in terms of physics. Yeah, we, th- and we think about the light bulb and the uh, steam engine and the telephone and all right. these different yeah. things. And we associate the inventor with it. But these, a lot of this was just, you know, we're just farmers and artisans and, and craftspeople who you know, we're just trying to come up with solutions to problems they faced. Right, exactly, to make life easier, basically, you know. Um, and it's it's funny how we, kind of looking back, have kind of imposed these, you know, kind of um, uh, labels on these periods. Like, you know, they used to call it the Dark Ages. Now I think historians are more kind of, you know, they're more realistic, and they don't they realize that, you know, it was the Dark Ages in the sense that there was a lot of disease and the Roman Empire collapsed, but it wasn't the Dark Ages in terms of people being ignorant and stupid and, you know, completely superstitious, because even after the fall of the Roman Empire, those everyday people, farmers and 
um, you know, hunters were um, figuring out, all right, how can we, uh, how can we make farming better? You know, how can we, you know, how can we use mill wheels to not just grind grain, but wouldn't it be great if we could power, you know, the blacksmith's forges so we could make more tools more quickly? Um, so always kind of applying themselves to problems that would, you know, make life better for them, even while they were worrying about, you know, where is the next raid going to come from <laughs> over the hill? Right, right. I, you know, I have been fascinated at at some of the work that people are doing in terms of trying to um, look for sustainable alternatives to fossil fuels. For example, there are other things going on too. But I'm always surprised when I see that at the end of the day, we're turning to things we were already doing 100 or 200 years ago. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, I just wondered if there were a lot of surprises when you were researching and putting together this book. Like, why didn't we just keep doing it that way? Right, (laughs) that's true. (laughs) Yeah, no, there there, there were lots of surprises. And um, my book talks about you know, not just the technical inventions, but there were social inventions that to this day we still benefit from, like the universities and the whole idea of like a corporation. Um, so that, and they were created for a kind of um, religious purposes, meaning, you know, the popes needed to kind of protect their <clears throat> autonomy. So they created a system of law so that they could kind of, you know, push back against, you know, the dukes and the secular rulers who basically wanted to take over. Um, and tell them, you know, who to appoint for bishops and so forth. But by doing so, they created a system of law that then the cathedral schools, you know, basically used to, like, become universities as they grew. Uh, and then all of the, the, the guildsmen, you know, the, the blacksmiths and the, the fullers and the tanners were like, yeah, we need to protect ourselves, too, against, you know, the feudal lords who are, you know, basically trying to screw us over. So we'll create a guild, you know, and we'll, we'll actually get a charter saying that, you know, we're a guild. And that was a form of protection, it, you know, goes way back. You know, I never knew that it went back that far. I just, I always thought, you know, oh, those things happened in the 19th century, you know, back, you know, when Karl Marx was writing Dust Capital. That's when, you know, labor unions started. It's like, no, it was way before that. <laughs> so, yeah, there were lots of surprises for me while I was researching. Now, aside from the clock and the camshaft, which are in the title, um, and once again, the book is by John Farrell, my guest, and it's called The Clock and the Camshaft and Other Medieval Inventions We Still Can't Live Without. But what are some other examples of something you would call a medieval invention that is still used every day? Um, uh, eyeglasses, um, spectacles, which were about the same time as the clock. <clears throat> and that was an interesting development. Um, again, um, it was a matter of, geez, can we come up with a better way you know, to help these old monks in the monastery see, because, you know, they're having, you know, as they got older, you know, they, they had no idea. They thought, you know, losing your eyesight as you got older was disease. They didn't realize it was just a natural thing of old age. Your eyes get tired. And, you know, they'd be trying everything from filling glass globes with water, you know, to act as a sort of a magnifying glass, and then you'd kind of slide it across the page in candlelight so that you could try to read better. And, um, when some of the crusaders were coming back from the Middle East, they that, brought with them... I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I can't help wondering if that's how glasses got their name. Oh, probably, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, definitely. Um, 
spectacles, glasses, and, and the idea of two, two glasses that can go right on your face, and they're both like the exact same magnification, so you're not kind of uh, messing up. That definitely happened um, in the process of, um, of figuring out how to improve uh, magnification. And um, the, uh, it, it was basically in Venice where they kind of perfected uh, glasses to the point that we're kind of used to now. And it was a kind of happy accident that the Crusaders were coming back with the, these kind of rock crystals that were really, aside from being beautiful and looking like they were worth a lot, they had magnific- better magnification than um, some of the things that they were trying to grind out on their own. And then um, they also they basically discovered that um, if you uh, use a mineral salt uh, called natron in the in the um, glass burning process, you could make much cleaner glass with better magnification. Uh, and then the next step was. Um, Okay, so how do we make, you know, you could make a magnifying glass, but in terms of being able to read, how could you do two, you know, two glasses, like in, in a rim over your eyes that are exactly the same magnification? And they figured that out by basically making a glass, uh, a glass globe and then slicing equal slices out of it so that, you know, the, the two slices from either end would match as lenses and then they could fit them in an eyeglass for you. And uh, and that really took off. Like I think within like um, a decade of the Venetian um, uh, glassmakers doing that, like, Britain was importing spectacles at the rate of like you know several hundred per month. So everybody once again was like, "Hey, uh, <laughs> we have a way to read better uh, that they just invented. Let's go get it." Now, see, because of the bifocal, I always associate glasses with Benjamin Franklin. Yes, that's right. Um, it's funny. Yeah, no, they were there, they were long before him. And it, what's interesting, too, is um, <clears throat> um, you don't see this that often, but they kind of peaked in terms of their quality around the 13 or 1400s, and then uh, they started getting sloppy in terms of mass production. The, the glass cutting wasn't so good, so that by the time Galileo in the 1600s wanted to make a telescope, the, the store-bought lenses were kind of crappy, and he was like, you know what, I'm going to grind my own because these just aren't very good. Um, <laughs> so um, it's a, it, it's a, it, it, they've been around long enough so that you have these fluctuations in quality, which, uh, again, is kind of an amazing thing. That's one of the things that I find um, really fascinating is some of the early astronomers and how much they were able to chart and map and see with fairly primitive equipment. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, it must have been amazing, you know, for, um, the first time when, you know, Galileo looked at the moon and then discovered the moons of Jupiter. Uh, and then in the reverse direction, of course, this happened much later. It wasn't really the Middle Ages <clears throat> when um, they uh, used, you know, basically reversed the process and created microscopes so that you could look at, for the first time, like in the 1700s, people saw that, oh, my God, you know, my skin is crawling with all these funny little cells. <laughs> right. And, uh you know, biology kind of took off from there. What are some other things that that we use in, in addition to um, eyeglasses that that come from long ago? I mean, obviously the printing press, but oh yes, um, well that's another kind of interesting story. Was um, and and again, you know, to your point about how we. We usually do associate a, ma- a name with an invention, and we think of Gutenberg with the printing press. But his was um, it, it was an extremely expensive production for him, and uh, he basically went bankrupt and had to turn the equipment back over to the lawyer who loaned him the money to 
to uh, print out his first Bibles. And, you know, the poor guy ended up working for another printer uh, for the rest of his life. But the thing that really kind of exploded um, literacy and book production was the mass production of uh, cheap paper. And, again, that was their, their good old um, vertical watermills, which they'd been using for, like I said, everything from, you know, pounding grain to pounding ore to um, pulling cloth. They realized, well, we can, we can mash up, you know, old rags and, you know, cellulose and, and make paper. And that, that basically took off in northern Italy, and um, that created its own kind of um, economic revolution. I, I think the demand for paper first was for, you know, the rising class of merchants in Italy, you know, during the Renaissance, who needed to, you know, keep accounts of everything they were buying and selling. Uh, but then, you know, books took off, and, and not just Bibles, but, you know, people started writing novels or little, you know, fairy tales and stuff like that. And um, the literacy explosion certainly had um, an effect on the religious transformations of the Protestant Reformation, where now people were like, you know, I don't have to just listen to what a priest tells me using the Bible, I can go read it myself. And that was a, a, a huge revolution, um, uh, powered by inexpensive paper. <laughs> Well, and another thing that that goes back, and I I have no idea how far, but windmills. Oh yes, yeah, windmills were interesting because um, they're not sure whether there's <clears throat> there are certain things where they seem to have been invented in China or the Middle East, and they kind of you know migrated across west into Europe. Uh, but it looks like windmills might have been independently invented around the same time. There were Persian windmills. Um, uh, where they would kind of cut out uh, a kind of tubular, you know, opening in uh, like a cliff or like a mound and build the windmill inside it um, so that they could grind grain, um, the Persian windmills. The problem is that, you know, you, you could only use them when the wind was coming from that direction. Uh, whereas in, North, in northern Europe, when they started um, building windmills, uh, both kinds um, uh, were on turrets so that they could turn the windmill into whatever direction the wind was coming. So you had kind of a basic, um, it was called a post mill, which was almost like uh, a treehouse on top of a, a huge you know, tree trunk, you know, a post, like a wooden, um, a wooden post. And it could be kind of directed from outside, like with a pole. You could turn it to face the wind. Uh, but then they got um, more ambitious and started building um, stone towers um, that were more sturdy and less likely to get destroyed in the windstorm. But with, again, with the same idea that you'd build a turret on top of it that wasn't stuck facing one direction, you could turn it into the direction of um, whichever the way the wind was going. So you could operate them, you know, all the time and, and feel like you could exploit them. And they became very um, prominent in the uh, 12 and 1300s. They never replaced water mills, just, but I think part of the reason is Europe was so, um, Europe has just tons and tons of river, tons and tons, you know, lots of water. So they were always able to uh, rely on water mills. But in those northern countries, you know, the Netherlands, um, even Poland, you know, um, Denmark, where you always had, like, really strong winds, uh, windmills became a huge part of the economy. And and they're really um, kind of a knockoff of, of the, um, the paddle wheels that were being used in water. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's that's kind of interesting because those are things those are the kinds of things that I was talking about earlier John that you know as we look for alternatives for power generation we're looking back we're looking at hydroelectric power we're looking at wind what about solar um were there 
times in history when when the sun was used to, for example, heat a home? Um, I don't think so. Uh, beyond the you know the normal one, we so we so say with just you know um, <clears throat> the good weather in the summertime. Um, I think it was there were certain things that were definitely easier uh, for the people who lived uh, in the Middle East or closer to the equator. Um, and one of the things I talked about in the book was um, uh, in in the evolution of like the plow, um, the people in the Middle East really didn't have to, the soil was kind of light and easy to turn over. So they never really used anything more complicated than a scratch plow, whereas up in Europe where the soil was really heavy, they were like, well, this isn't going to work. We have to come up with something better. And they kind of, you know, basically built on the scratch plow and turned it into a heavy plow, you know, driven by oxen or horses, and um, um, basically went from there. But I, I don't think there was nothing, uh, you know, surprisingly ingenious in terms of, like, using solar power beyond just, you know, keeping warm when you could. They did do, um, uh, and this is not solar power, but, you know, uh, use, you know burning wood for heat. Um, and uh, another thing that kind of surprised me was how quickly um, deforestation became an issue, even in the Middle Ages, because first in the seven and 800s, uh, the farmers would burn lots of area of forest um, to clear the way for farming property, um, farming uh, area. But the, the act of burning would actually, the ash would actually enrich the soil. Uh, so they would do these kind of controlled burnings um, for the purposes of uh, making more and more farmland. Um, and then, of course, later as the mill technology took off, they started deforesting. So they, you know, had the wood, uh, you know, for their sawmills so they could build and build and build. And by... Um, made the middle of the 1200s, this is like a century before the Black Death, they were already starting to realize that, you know, if we're not careful, we're going to be running out of, <laughs> we won't be able to build as much as we were used to. Um, I think Germany in particular, uh, which was like 80% forest, and by the 1250, it was down to like 20%. Um, so uh, uh, that's not solar power, but in, in the sense, except in the sense that you're burning wood, you know, from trees that grew uh, from the sun. What are um, what are you doing now? I mean, I'm glad to see you giving this book a resurgence, and I think the timing is uh, especially good because of the interest in finding alternatives to contemporary energy sources, for one. Um, but uh, what's John Farrell up to now? Um, I'm doing some reading, you know, doing a lot of reading for my next book um, and trying to figure out what do I want to do. Um, it's kind of in a very different direction, but I, I did a big article uh, for Commonweal Magazine last year on artificial intelligence um, and, you know, robots and, you know, what are the challenges presented by um, the mass production of, again, sort of labor-saving machines, uh, but are they going to take over and put us all out of work? I mean, as you know, this is already, I think, a huge problem for um, you know automation. Um, if we created a monster that's going to you know leave us all without a means to actually earn a living because everything is done by machine, so that's a kind of interesting um, uh, question, sort of related in the sense that you know have we gotten so successful now we've put ourselves out of a job uh, because our machines are so good at you know doing more and more things. Um, I don't I don't think that's you know going to be the threat, but I do think. You know, we do need to think about, um, you know, regulating uh, what we do with this kind of thing uh, so that we don't um, uh, leave, like, entire generations of people out of work. 
Well, Andrew Yang, when he ran for president, um, wrote a book on that very subject and suggested throughout his campaign back in 2016 that um, he, he thought that people were going to have to really turn their attention to reinventing the economy for that very reason. Yes, that's what I remember that, yeah. And and he's not the only one. Obviously, there have been others that have been talking about universal basic income and, you know, other possibilities. But, but it is something that needs to be looked at. So I, I wish you uh, a lot of luck with the book and the project. John, thank you for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share? I do. I have a website. It's basically my last name with media, so F-A-R-R-E-L-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. And I have, I have the books advertised there and also like some of my articles that I've, I've written or published there. So, yeah, that's my main website. Well, John, thanks again, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be on your show. All right. Take care. Take care. Again, that was uh, John Farrell. He is uh, a uh, Harvard graduate uh, with a B.A. in um, English and American Literature. He's written for the Wall Street Journal, New Scientist, the Boston Globe. He's written several books, and uh, including uh, the one we were talking about this morning, The Clock and the Camshaft and other medieval inventions we still can't live without. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. Now, when a virus comes along that's spreading like a plague, and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague, well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well, unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until july a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if you got a better cough in your arm and if you got a better <coughs> now back in 1918 influenza had its run but half the docks were busy overseas with world war one today we have mass media and scientists to say if you don't want this virus well then stay six feet away super damn important that we practice isolation because we are asymptomatic while it's an incubation will overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation it's super damn important that we practice isolation if we don't do it then we're all gonna die if we don't do it then we're all gonna die and so i hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart because it's already scary and we're only at the start if you get bored just think of the immunocompromised who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized oh super bad transmittable contagious awful virus if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine the last until july a super bad transmittable Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Old fashioned radio.
for a new generation. Tom Sumner Program.com. Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? Mm. It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello! I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Wisecarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Lone Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan. Flip Flip Technology. My Community College. It's pure Michigan. 
friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to tom at tomsumnerprogram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. There's a book written called Psychological Studies of Famous Americans, and it examines from a psychological viewpoint uh, Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant and uh, Walt Whitman, people like this, and tries to explain in terms of psychology why these people acted the way they did, that they really did not act from... uh, from valor or anything else, that there were deep psychological problems these people had, and that's why they reacted the way they did. One person they skipped that I thought would be a great subject for analysis, if they had analysis when he was around, was uh, Ben Franklin. I think he... (laughs) I think this man is ripe for analysis. So this is uh, Ben's analyst. And he's in a typical analyst's office. He has a a desk and a chair and a couch and an intercom. Yeah, uh, who who, uh, who is it, Murray? Ben Ben Franklin. Um, Can I uh, can I duck him, Murray? (laughs) He's he's standing right there in the office. He's, he's dripping all over the rugs. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, send him in, Mary. Uh, uh, Mary, how, how's he doing on his account? Uh, th- three months behind, huh? Yeah, he's, he's thrifty, all right, Mary. All right, send him in, send him in. Well, hi, hi there, Ben. How are you today? Good. Ben, you want to you lie down on the couch there? Uh, ben, you want to put some papers down on the couch so... Don't uh, don't get the couch all wet. Well, I'd I'd say from the looks of our clothes, we've been uh, flying the kite again in the rainstorm, right, Ben? <laughs> okay, Ben. Um, we copied on our dreams, did we? Mm-hmm. You you didn't have to. It's the same one. You're you're walking down the street. And you, you find a half dollar, and your face is on it. <laughs> that's, that's pretty sick, Ben, you know that? <laughs> Washington has the same dream, only he sees his face on paper. Huh? Do you want to you give George my number, uh, Ben? <laughs> Okay, Ben, let's, let's see if we can't get to the bottom of this kite fixation thing. Um, the, uh, the lightning knocked you down again, uh, did it, Ben? <laughs> uh, 
You're, you're not surprised by that, though, are you? I mean, you, you expect it to knock you down, don't you? <laughs> you know, Ben, uh, you being a founding father and all, you know, it, uh, it doesn't exactly inspire confidence in people to see a, you know, a grown man flying a kite, you know? <laughs> it's too bad it, it, it isn't something a little more private, you know, you could, you could do in the privacy of your own room, like uh, spinning a top, you know, <laughs> some, something like that. You have, ever thought of spinning a top, Ben? Would, wouldn't knock you down. Mm-hmm. That's, that's important to you, is it, Ben? The, mm-hmm. Okay, let, let me see if I have the picture now, Ben. Uh, you're flying your kite, all right, Ben? And you're letting out the string. Everything's the same as usual. There's, there's something different this time. You, you use strips of cloth for the tail. Red, white, and blue strips of cloth. <laughs> where'd, uh, where'd you get the red, white, and blue strips of cloth, Ben? From, from Betsy Ross. <laughs> she, she's got plenty of it. She, she's up to wearing it, Ben? <laughs> now, uh, Be- uh, Betsy gave you the cloth, did she, Ben? You, you took the cloth. A, a penny saved is a penny earned. Why, uh, uh, why didn't you ask uh, Betsy for the cloth, Ben? She thinks you're a sissy because you wear bows on your shoes. And, and she chased you down the street yelling, you're not thrifty, you're cheap. She, uh, she could have something there, Ben. <laughs> nothing, 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 Ben. Mm-hmm. Why, uh, why didn't you uh, pay Betsy uh, for, for the cloth, Ben? Keep what is dear to you if, if you would prosper. Mm-hmm. Ben, I, I think we can get a lot more done if, if you drop the little homilies after, after each, uh, <laughs> each statement. Ben, we don't seem to be getting anywhere with it, with a kite thing. Uh, let's switch to something else. How how are the inventions uh, coming along, Ben? You you got lucky this morning. You you don't have to wear your bifocals anymore. The the lightning fused your glasses to your eyeballs. <laughs> What, uh, what are you going to call them, Ben? Con- contact lenses. <laughs> ben, I, I, uh, I sure would like to be more optimistic about your condition, but um, <laughs> afraid I'm going to have to recommend a shock treatment, Ben. Uh, I, don't, I don't like to do it because there are always uh, undesirable side effects. Well, what, what we do, Ben, is uh, we stick you inside the Liberty Bell and, uh, and we, <coughs> we uh, ring, ring it a couple times, you know. Well, uh, the problem is you, you, you quiver for about two or three years, you see. <laughs> ben, I'm afraid our time is almost up. We'll see you uh, next, next Thursday, then. Right. Goodbye, Ben. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
they just had to laugh I saw the photograph He blew his mind out in a car That the lights had changed A crowd of people stood aside They seen his face before Nobody was really sure if he was from the house of Notice I was late. Grab my coat, grab my hat, made the books and seconds flat. But I'm always says and I had a smoke. Somebody spoke and I went into a dream.
You pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.